Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. This week, I had the chance to speak with Thomas Holyoke. Tom is the author of Competitive Interests, Competition and Compromise in American Interest Group Politics. I hope that you enjoy this interview that I did with Tom. Thank you. Welcome to the New Books in Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the pleasure today to speak with Tom Holyoke. Tom, how are you doing? Pretty good, Heath. Thank you. Um, I had the, have had the pleasure to read your book a little while ago, and we're just now getting to actually talk about it uh, because of lots of different stuff going on in your life, some of the stuff that I know about. But maybe before we get to the actual book, you can talk a little bit about what your academic background is, where you are now, and the kind of stuff sure. about who you are. Sure. Well, uh, academically, I did my Ph.D. work at George Washington University, got a degree there in political science, started studying interest groups and advocacy there, although I was had already taken an interest in that. Um, back in the 1990s, I'd done some work in some interest groups, and, and then even when I did some work for the New York State Legislature, I was fascinated at the way interest groups and lobbying worked, and I'd more or less already made up my mind to study that when I went to get my Ph.D. degree. And after having gotten that, I've continued to do most of my research one way or another on interest groups and lobbying, whether it's you know, interest groups in national politics, advocacy for charter schools. It's always been about you know how interest groups work and how they go about making voices of different segments of the public heard and how well interest groups really represent their members. And in full but probably unnecessary disclosure, I have the great pleasure to have helped you and written some of that stuff with you. And so it's such such a pleasure to see this project that I had nothing to do with and and see how it's turned out. Um, was, Was the book that turned out what you originally pitched to the publisher? I'm always interested in kind of what leads up to the you know, first couple of steps. Did you maybe you can talk a little bit about that the early stages of the book? Was this what you had in mind when you pitched the book to to Georgetown University Presses? Did you give them sort of the final version? Yeah, um, yeah this book is 
basically a dramatically revised version of my PhD dissertation. Now, it changed a lot, I think, since the dissertation had started, but when it came to pitching the book to Georgetown University Press, yeah, the manuscript was already in a very advanced stage. Uh, in fact, if I recall, after they read the prospectus and were interested in the book, they re then requested to see significant portions of it, which I could do because it was you know, a lot of it was already finished. So what they agreed to and what was finally delivered was you know, more or less about the same thing. But you know, the larger project, which I gosh, must have been working on for about six years, uh, underwent some considerable changes from its early stages. Yeah, and, and I, maybe that's something that so we can reflect on as we go. Also, before we start the book, I'm always interested in the acknowledgement sections of books. And so I wonder before we start, you know, who is Scott Weiser and, and why is he so influential on your scholarship? Yeah, actually, I spent a great deal of time actually thinking through that acknowledgement section. Scott Weiser was um, the uh, chief lobbyist for an organization called the Iowa Motor Truck Association. In fact, not only was he its lobbyist, he was the association president. When I was an undergraduate student at uh, Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, <laughs> I got an opportunity to do some internship work for Scott Weiser at Iowa Motor Truck Association, sort of in being his you know, intern lobbyist assistant, you know, helping him as he went about the business of representing the trucking industry in Iowa politics, you know, the Iowa State Capitol, which essentially gave me a first-hand view of how lobbying worked. I mean, I was you know, right there in the middle of it, and I actually did this for a three sessions of the Iowa State Legislature, not only got to know Scott very well, but also many of the other lobbyists out there. But, you know, it's, I thank Scott Weiser because it's really by working with him and his generosity that let me work with him that I was able to really see how lobbying worked from the inside, which I think a lot of interest group scholars, I don't think they have that opportunity. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and we'll talk a little bit about the method you used, but anytime you're going to do interviews, that um, sort of ability to know the language of the field, not just the, not the academic field, but the actual yeah. practical field, I think really does make a, make a big difference. You know, I, I assume that I knew this at some point, but, but you know, I, I did all this work for the uh, bus industry, so I had no idea that um, we, uh, we shared that attachment to the motor coach industry like, like we did. So let's, let's talk about the book itself and some of the... Um, so your, your take on what has come before it, uh, you argue in Chapter 2 that you know, essentially there are two traditional strands of interest group research, but that you know, over time or, or where we are now that they've sort of come together or merged. Um, what are these two streams, and, and what is your argument about where we sit uh, now as a field prior to, let's say, writing your book? Well, yeah, I, mean, I think the interest group literature bifurcates into two distinct areas. One is collective action research, uh, how interest groups form, why interest groups form, why people would join an interest group, you know, what, you know, how long they would stay in an interest group, how interest groups work internally. Um, and that's been actually a pretty rich field of research for about 40 or 50 years, particularly after... Uh, uh, you, I mean, I hear a siren or something there. 
That's that's just uh, my New York location is, is picking up in the background. <laughs> okay. I can hear you clearly. Okay, good. Especially in the wake of research by Mansour uh, Olson, this logic of collective action. I mean, it was just an explosion of research on interest group formation and organizational maintenance, and a really rich literature, too. Now, on the other side of that, there is also a field of research on uh, lobbying and influence, you know, how interest group lobbyists or, or lobbyists for a variety of interests, not just interest groups, but, you know, corporations and organizations that don't truly have members. But, you know, the research is on how these lobbyists are able to gain influence with lawmakers, whether those lawmakers are in the Congress or in the bureaucracy, the White House, or even how uh, lobbyists are able to pursue political goals through the courts. And it was always kind of my feeling that these literatures were rather divorced from each other, and that that was really a very artificial division. I mean, a lobbyist, the primary responsibility is to you know, gain influence and find ways to pursue their organization's goals with elected or appointed officials. But you know, what are these organizations' goals? Well, the organization's goals presumably are to provide representation to their members. So they're a reflection of what the members want. So who joins an interest group, how they participate in an interest group, feeds into the very interest, or really creates the very interest that a lobbyist is trying to pursue. So these literatures that are in, it developed largely in isolation from, from each other, at least that was my impression, um, really need to be connected. And the way to understand the connection is by focusing on the lobbyist, him or herself, because it's the lobbyist who is representing these member interests and how successful they are in gaining influence means they are more or less able to represent member interests. And, and the, lobbyist, the lobbyist really needs to be able to walk a fine line here because they need to more or less faithfully represent the interests of members, but at the same time, they have to, being influential in government also means you know, being able to be of service, of use to elected officials or appointed officials um, because these officials need to have a reason to want to give access to the lobbyist. And often that means the lobbyist has to be able to provide something to those elected and appointed officials. And that can kind of put the lobbyist between a rock and a hard place because what if what the uh, officials want, the government officials want, is not entirely consistent with what the members want. You know, who is the lobbyist going to prioritize? How is the lobbyist going to try to align these interests, so to speak. And that's why chapter two in, that, in the book, the theoretical chapter, is really all about trying to model how the lobbyist balances these competing pressures. Well, they aren't always competing pressures, but they often are. Mm -hmm. now, before, and I have a specific question, actually, about, about sort of that part of the book you just talked about. But maybe before we get to that, um, you can talk maybe a little bit about how you actually did this project. Um, what type of data collection did you do exactly? Uh, the data collection largely comes from you know, in-person interviews and field research in Washington, D.C. So 
one of the great benefits of having been able to earn a PhD at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., is that you know, I'm sitting in the middle of the, the field where I want to do my field research. That's <laughs> a great benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, in order to try to answer these questions, you need to be able to not just observe the choices lobbyists make, but also to get a sense as to the different pressures on them. You know, were they, you know, were, did they need to be able to find some way to accommodate lawmakers, or how cohesive were uh, their memberships, and how well were they representing their memberships? And there, there really, in my mind, there is no other way to get that kind of information except to ask, mm-hmm. to go and to, did- to, to the lobbyist and talk to them about it. Yeah, and did you find that the lobbyists were easy to interview? Are they are they candid, or do they do they worry about sort of spilling industry secrets to you? What's the what's how how easy was it to interact with them on these kinds of you know, what what can be kind of you know secretive processes? Well, here's the thing about interviewing lobbyists, and I've been doing this for years for both this project and other projects. Getting in to see them is the tough part. That is, you know, convincing them to give up some of their time to, uh, you know, to talk with an academic because they often don't see it as really in their interest to do so. I mean, I don't think they see it as a threat, but, you know, it's just time of theirs that's not going to something else perhaps more useful. But once you are able to convince them to give you some of their time and you actually get into their office and get them talking, you know, these are people who make their living by talking. So once they start talking, frankly, it's I found it kind of hard to get them to stop talking. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, I've often found them to be surprisingly candid. Not all of them. I, I remember some interviews which were a little rough because lobbyists did not really want to tell me very much. I have to get, keep on prodding them without being overly intrusive. But, but for the most part, you know, lobbyists would just start talking and talking and talking. And I remember a couple interviews where, you know, it's been two hours and the lobbyist hasn't stopped talking yet. And I need mm-hmm. to make an, ex- an excuse to <laughs> get out of there. Right, right. And so, and, and sort of link this back to sort of theoretical point you just made. You write, uh, I think it's page 20, 29, that when lobbyists take more extreme positions relative to the positions their legislator friends are supporting, failure in their advocacy and subsequent exclusion from the table where the agenda is set are almost guaranteed. In other words, faithful representing uh, their members' interests can put lobbyists' careers at risk. I wonder when in your interviews, um, uh, did your respondents talk in these terms? Are they they conscious of this existential tightrope that they walk? Yeah, absolutely they are. In fact, it would probably not have occurred to me to you know, write about these things and to write about these competing pressures that lobbyists are under if the lobbyists themselves hadn't told me about it. Um, and the original idea here came from a different project, an earlier project that ended up manifesting as a political research quarterly article I published in, I think, 2003 on venue shopping. Um, and I talked to some lobbyists about their experiences uh, working on what became the uh, Graham-Leach-Bliley Act of 1999, financial modernization legislation that 
broke down the regulatory walls between banking, Wall Street investing, and the insurance industry, which now may have contributed to the Great Recession. But in any case, um, and they talked a lot about difficulties they had working with some lawmakers. Uh, for some reason, New York Senator Alphonse D'Amato comes to mind. Um, that basically, you know, D'Amato would tell them, this is the, this is the place I want to get to. This is the kind of legislation I want to be able to produce. And, you know, we'll try to accommodate you know, different interest groups here somewhat, but in the end, this is what we're going to come up with, and you can either get on the bandwagon and work with me, or if you insist on opposing this framework that I've got worked out here, well, bye-bye. You're, mm-hmm. I'm, going to cut, I'm going to cut you out of this, and, and you're going to be, remain out of it. And since he was chairman of the uh, Senate Banking Committee at the time, <laughs> his threat to exclude lobbyists was a pretty significant threat. And for the most part, lobbyists got in line behind an agreement that a lot of them didn't really like, and a lot of members didn't really like, especially mm-hmm. especially independent insurance agents. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, I think I actually, the introduction to my book is... Uh, the conversation I had with the lobbyists for the independent insurance agents that really struck me that they really got pressured into accepting a deal that wasn't really that that good for their members. And their members were really upset about it, but it was either you know, agree to this deal and get some concessions out of Demata and the legislators, or get cut out and Demata would probably produce legislation that was even harsher on independent insurance agents. Yeah, and and you know you you take in your title this this the phrase competition and compromise, yeah. which we often think of diametrically opposed, particularly in the current political environment on Capitol Hill. Right. Um, but you suggest that that you know you can think about competition and compromise in a in a different way. So what what's your take on the the, the relationship between competition and compromise in the context of of interest group politics? Well, competition is almost more of a state of being than uh, an action or a decision. I mean, interest groups represent fairly, in my my opinion, fairly well-defined member interests. And a lot of the interests of members of different interest groups intersect on the same issue that lawmakers maybe trying to resolve with new policy or deciding whether an existing policy status quo needs revision. So that if if the the members of one interest group believe that any change to policy that might benefit a different interest group would be detrimental to them, then these are groups that are in competition. What benefits one group is potentially harmful to the other, although some of that is perception rather than reality. That's what competition is. A benefit to one group comes at some expense to another group. Um, now, the lobbyist, what do you do with this? On, at some points in time, you have to be able to make agreements, make deals with lobbyists for competing interest groups and ultimately form a coalition. If you can't do that, you might be excluded by lawmakers, but otherwise things just plain can't be done. And to make a deal like that, to, to form a coalition, to some extent, lobbyists for competing interests have to make some concessions on what their members want to come together and make a deal. The alternative is to is to fight. I mean, if you cannot make the concessions necessary to join a coalition, then you're probably going to have to try to fight to stop 
a new policy proposal going through, or you could, I suppose, choose not to lobby at all, but, you know, that's not going to exactly impress members. And that's really what I'm trying to get at here, the kinds of choices a lobbyist has under different kinds of pressures. how, How great is the competition, state of competition with the other interest groups involved in this issue? How strong are those competitors? What kind of pressure are they going to be under from the lawmakers involved to cut a deal? How much pressure is the lobbyist going to be under from his or her own members to hold the line? Or will they have the flexibility to make a concession? So all these issues have to go through a lobbyist's mind as they try to figure out the right strategy. Yeah, and, and you know, some of your book is about the, the explosion of interest groups and the proliferation of interest groups. Yeah. And I wonder if I wonder if, um, if if that means that the environment that that you're looking at is is just categorically different than the pre-explosion time period. What are, what what is the you know this what is the interaction between the growth in numbers and the strategic decisions and behaviors and choices that that individual lobbyists actually have to make? Well, when we talk about the explosion, we're referring to uh, a time period, oh, let's say roughly from the mid-1960s to the mid-1970s, when the sheer number of interest groups active in national politics grew dramatically. And even more importantly, the types of interest groups expanded. The late 60s is when we have the emergence of large numbers of what we call citizens groups or public interest groups, which are very distinct from the more traditional work-based associations. Uh, citizens groups and public interest groups are they're much more cause-oriented rather than simply trying to provide representation for people whose common interest happens to be what they do for a living. Um, you know, the 60s is when we get you know, Ralph Nader's uh, Public Citizen, uh, Consumer Federation of America becomes prominent. Uh, Consumers Union, a lot of the environmental uh, organizations appear at this time. And these are groups that are arguably more interested in pursuing uh, really member principles in politics and are probably going to be somewhat less interested in making compromises because their members are much more politically aware. Frankly, their members are much more politically passionate than are the members of work-based associations. So those are kind of the two big changes that form this event that we refer to as the interest group explosion. Now, going to the other part of what you're asking, there has been an assumption, and I'd say that it still kind of is an assumption, that this big increase in the number of interest groups and the expansion in the kinds of interest groups out there fundamentally changed the way lobbying takes place. But prior to this explosion, when there were fewer interest groups, more lobbyists were able to work very quietly behind the scenes of members of Congress to make policy that benefited their members without being overly concerned about what other interest groups thought, that there was a lot less interest group competition. That 
public policy being made in Congress or the regulatory agencies really only affected just one interest group without bothering other interest groups. Now, other interest groups can pursue their own policy goals without you know, disturbing other interest groups. There was a lot less competition. And that sort of led to theories about uh, sub-governments and iron triangles where one or a very small number of interest groups with very similar interests would be so influential with a few lawmakers, a few regulatory agencies, that they would basically control public policy that related to their members' interests. And they could maintain these beneficial arrangements because there was no competition from other threatened interest groups. Now, that's a theory without a great deal of empirical evidence backing it. We have so little data on what interest groups were really doing before the 1960s. So, you know, was there ever really a time when there was very little competition between interest groups and iron triangles were thriving? I just don't know. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone really does. So let's get to, in the interest of time, what, what we do know, and particularly what we know from your book. So what, what do you think are the major uh, original empirical contributions of your book to the field of interest group research? What do, we, what do we learn that we didn't know, or what have you verified that we've only known in theory, but now we know a bit more uh, 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 clearly? Well, I think the biggest contribution, I hope the biggest contribution, is to realize that interest group advocacy, that the choices interest group lobbyists make is a consequence of them trying to balance a lot of different pressures. The need to represent their members, the need to be able to work with lawmakers and serve lawmaker interests, and the need to be able to cope with lots of other interest groups and lobbyists also working on the same issue, their competitors. And not and I hope the contribution of the book is to bring all this to light, that this is really how lobbying works, and by doing so, bring together some literatures that have, before this point in time, I felt been kind of disassociated from each other. And really, there had been no, no good literature on how lobbyists deal with each other. That's a literature that's still very much in its infancy. And... After having hopefully made the case that this is how lobbying works, which is really what the first half of the book is about, the second half of the book is showing how this manifests in things like coalition building, how legislation moves to the Congress, and how you know competition between interest groups um, can contribute to or sometimes make less likely what we call gridlock. So in other words, let's put it this way. The first half of the book is about, kind of really theoretically, how interest group competition works and how lobbyists make decisions in competitive environments. And the second half of the book is showing how this affects things, like the movement of legislation, lobbying coalitions, and gridlock. And then the book ends with some reflections on you know, what this all means for democratic representation through interest groups. And fundamentally, it's something interest groups are supposed to do. It's supposed to provide representation for a certain group of members. 
Oh, I really enjoyed the book, and I, I, I would strongly recommend it to, to anyone. The, the, the title of the book is Competitive Interests, Competition, and Compromise in American Interest Group Politics. The book was published uh, in uh, August of 2011. It's now available also in various electronic formats, which makes it accessible to, to everyone. Tom, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much. 